Welcome to Story Conversations. I'm Simon Arrowsmith and with me as always is... Susan Griffin. Hi Susan, how are you doing? Hello, I'm good, I'm good. Um, I'm very excited for today's conversation uh, for, for reasons that will become evident shortly. Susan, why don't you tell us about oh, our guest? Yes, as am I. Well, our guest is a 17-time Grammy-nominated songwriter, Phil Galston. Um, he he has well if we won't I won't even try to introduce him. We'll just we'll just go right into it because it's so exciting. It is. Phil, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we we really appreciate um, having you on the podcast, and we like to start our conversations with our guests by asking them to share a little bit about your origin story. And, you know, you are this amazingly accomplished songwriter, but you started, well, not maybe started, but you, you were an American studies major at Union College. Give it, us give but, us the story of how you got from there to here. Well, my activity in music started well before I was in college. My, my late mother used to like to... Uh, point to my initial foray into this was when I led a group of five-year-olds in singing the Davy Crockett song <laughs> in our apartment complex. But I was fortunate uh, that my family moved to Great Neck, New York on Long Island uh, when I was six years old. And my parents moved there because it had had and still has one of the great American public school systems. And part of that greatness was a devotion to the arts. So I began to play trumpet when I was 10 years old. And before that, um, my parents had installed our baby grand piano in my brother's in my bedroom, because that was a logical place to put it. Sorry, let me back up one step and say, if you don't mind, if I say something wrong, I'll stop and start again. Okay, so you can edit later. Is that okay? Well, we just honestly we just go all the way through because it's just a conversation. Okay. Just, just, just roll with it because we'll leave it all in. No editing. Even this bit with me explaining how we're going to do it, we just leave it all in because it's it's more more fun and more for, informal that way. Simon, the audience should know I already intensely dislike you. <laughs> <laughs> so what it I was, saves me time as well. That's the other thing. <laughs> what I was going to say is that my parents installed our upright grand piano in my brother's and my bedroom. And my, my brother and my sister, both older than I, took piano lessons. And I began to noodle on the piano because it was there. And my mother, who was distinctly unmusical, put a note chart across the piano and said, these are the notes here's the music, take a look. And I figured it out. And so I began to play these pieces that my brother and sister were learning. And my mother came to me and said, would you like to take piano lessons? And I said, yeah, I like the teacher a lot. She would say hello to me. So the teacher came in and she said, your mother tells me that you can play long, long ago on the piano. Will you play it for me in the key of F, ladies and gentlemen? So I said, yes. And I sat down and I played it. And when I was done playing it, she said, very good. Do you know what these little numbers over the over the notes are? And I said, no. She said, they're to tell you which finger to use when you play which note. 
I'm coming back next week to teach your brother and sister. If you can play this piece with the correct fingers, I'll teach you. And if you can't, I won't. <laughs> now, as an educator in my latter stages here, I know that that's the wrong approach. And sure enough, when she showed up the next week, I couldn't play it with the right fingers because I was already playing the Alfred Hitchcock theme which my brother and sister were studying, which is a famous classical piece. And I was really deep into that. I had no interest in learning the correct fingers. And unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, to this day, I play in a totally idiosyncratic way. But yes. it's still at work to some degree. <laughs> That's such a relief to hear. <laughs> That's where I started. But Great Neck was a great place to grow up, particularly for a musical kid. And I got to play trumpet in the in the band and the marching band and the Saturday afternoon recreational band. Then I got to play in the dance band. Then I got to play in the more sophisticated dance band. Then I got to sing in the chorus. Then I got to sing in the boys group in the morning, uh, etc. And so by the time I was ready to go to college, um, I was intrigued by conservatories, but my interests were quite a bit broader than that. And I also was following I felt, in many respects, in the footsteps of my heroic older brother, who was an American civ major at Brown. And so I thought that was what was interested, interesting to me. But I wanted to go to school in New York. And so I applied to NYU, and I applied to Union College, and Brown, and another school. And... Um, I would have gotten into Brown, I was told, except I got a D in math in the first term. And I got a D in math because my rock band, which started when I just before my 15th birthday, had gotten a record deal <laughs> with Epic oh. Records. And we were in the studio making a record, and I had no interest in math, and I got a D in math. But I did get into Union, and I got into NYU. And my father who, among other things, was an NYU professor. Uh, and I sat down for a chat. And he said, well, where would you like to go to school? And I said, oh, NYU. I've got all these friends there, like the great Alan Menken, who had become a friend by then. And um, he said, okay, well, I have a recommendation. It's your choice. And I said, what's that? And he said, I recommend you go to Union. And I said, why? He said, well, first of all, it's a better school. Because at that point, NYU was not what it is today. <laughs> said the NYU professor loyal. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that later. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, but there's another reason why. You think you want to live and make music in New York? And I said, I do. And he said, well, then I recommend you go to Union because you'll test that hypothesis. And I said, huh, that was very convincing to me. What my father didn't tell me as I chose Union was that I could have gone to NYU for free because he was a professor. Wow. How generous my parents were. Wow. So I went to Union. And while I was at Union, my high school rock band, which had this deal with Epic, lost the deal with Epic, but with the help of a couple of other members of that band, we kind of transitioned into a jazz rock band uh, that became known as Freeway. And we were very well known in New York City 
And we got to do a lot of cool things like play the Fillmore East and play on the Tonight Show. All of that. It's all ancient history. But it was very, these were very formative lessons to me. And our managers, the legendary firm of Rollins and Jaffe, uh, they were the ones who secured all these great opportunities for us. I mean, we were good, but not great, but good. And we were dynamic. And I was the main songwriter and the main lead singer. And, you know, it's a long winding path. You tell me how far you want to go into it. No, that's, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, your, your, your bio is, um, well, I'm, I'm in awe, absolutely like a bit starstruck, if I'm honest. Um, you know, you, you're an award-winning songwriter, producer. You've been on virtually what, every Billboard chart. Yeah. That's right. A, a, over 130 million copies of your songs and productions have appeared in more than 80 million records worldwide. I mean, you've you've had okay. Let's just let's just see who who's recorded who's recorded your songs. Celine Dion, Cheryl Crow, Chicago. Oh, just Beyonce, Brandy, Esperanza Spalding, Yolanda Adams. I mean, it, the list goes on. Is and have we missed out? Apart from a very famous um, example, have we missed out any of your favorites. Well, there there list? is is Kurt Elling as well. If we're yes. going to go into the jazz genre, my favorites. Um, well, what you're, what, what, as you said, the famous singer, <laughs> Vanessa Williams, she's one of my favorites, and she's one of my favorite people, as is Kurt. And we have such a close relationship and partnership. She's recorded 10 of my songs. And um, Kurt and I have been working together now for, I counted it up the other day, I think it's 20 years. Uh, I've had songs on almost all of his records. I think all but all but two is holiday album and the Grammy winning record he made of Johnny Mercer songs. And uh, that we're just finishing two songs for his next album, which is another incredible exploration with the phenomenal guitarist Charlie Hunter. Um so that's an ongoing project. Favorite favorite covers, you know, the world of covers. And why do we call them covers? Um, it's kind of a funny term when you're somebody who gave up being a performer years ago. Um, but we call them covers, I guess, because they're, everything's a cover. <laughs> everything's a cover. Um, when I when I transitioned from being a performer and recording artist, uh, I had a really profound realization. And many times I've been asked, particularly by younger audiences, uh, what was the best day of your career? Mm. Was it being number one? Was it Grammy nomination? Was it, you know, what was it? And I often say that in many ways, the best day was the day I stopped being a performer and recording artist because then the shackles were off. Then I realized I could write kind of whatever I wanted. And I didn't have to think about these cubby holes, these niches, these market-driven concepts. And that's when the freedom of being a songwriter became so incredibly appealing and remains so. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the song, of course, that is 
that you're most well known for, I guess, and that our audience will be familiar with is Save the Best for Last that Vanessa Williams recorded. I, I adore that song. It's so beautiful. Um, how many songs have you written? I think it's close to 700. Wow. And how do you keep that? How do you keep that fresh? How do you keep those stories fresh? Because each, each song is a story. How do you manage to do that? Well, first of all, you just made a great point. Um, a lot of a lot of people who write songs, and I'm I'm a lot of people who write songs, and I am non-prejudicial about this. I look at songwriting as a uh, a human activity that probably predates most forms of expression. For example, I'd like to tell the story that my wife Nancy and I, with our closest friends, visited the Grand Canyon a while back. And we had the great fortune to take a boat trip down the upper Colorado River. You can, you can go to the edge of the Grand Canyon and then you've got to get off. So we took a three-hour boat trip, which I highly recommend. And during this trip, we stopped midway uh, at a little beach on the Colorado to have lunch. And the guide said, while you're enjoying your lunch, I want you to look across the river to those cliffs and you see paintings by indigenous people, and they date from the year 1100. And talk about awe-inspiring. This is it. And we're sitting looking at them and reflecting, and all I could think was, while these people were painting these glorious paintings, what were they singing? Because I'm sure they were singing. Mm. And so I see what I do and what my colleagues and everybody's following in this path, we're all following some version of that tradition. Now, if you ask the average songwriter, particularly people who are starting out, why they write, there's usually an incredible variation in their answers, but many of those answers will say self-expression or I get to say things through songs that I can't say to anybody else any other way. And those are all beautiful sentiments and important sentiments and important reasons. But when you do it, as, as your question really touches, Simon, when you do it, not just when you do it as a way of life and you do it for a long time, then I think most of us begin to encounter other reasons important reasons why we do it. And to me, these all boil down to an overarching principle, which is communication. And once you get to that, what sounds incredibly bland, boring word, com communication, then what happens is, you, I think you have to ask yourself questions of intent. And what I mean by that is, what are you trying to communicate? With whom are you trying to communicate it? And by what means are you going to attempt to do so? So this is a long answer to your question, but that's why story becomes so essential. And I'll tell you what I think is even more important than story. Once you get into the art and craft of doing it, backstory mm -hmm. is more important. And that's because songs are, to my way of thinking, the, the musical analog of the short story. And anybody who loves short stories, and I, I recommend to anybody who wants to be a songwriter, 
that they read short stories constantly, will discover that, that you only have so much real estate. Even if you write a 10-minute song, you still only have so much real estate. And you have to figure out what the back, how the backstory can inform the story you're telling. Therefore, what you leave out is just as important, sometimes more important, than what you put in. And if I may complete this circle, mm -hmm. writing the lyric to save the best for last with my dear friend and beloved collaborator, Wendy Waldman, was the first time that this became so profoundly evident to me. Wendy and I had been writing together by then for seven years, and we'd written some songs that we both loved. We'd gotten some good covers. Um, this was the first time I brought to her a piece of music to which she had not contributed and asked if she would like to write the lyric with me. And the backstory to that was that my now, unfortunately, late dear friend and collaborator, John Lind, and I had been writing a song in L.A. in February of 89, one evening in, a, in the borrowed apartment of a friend, because I didn't have a place to write in L.A., and John had three kids in his house and there was no space. So we borrowed an apartment from a friend. We were writing on a dinky keyboard. And we were writing a song we were positive was a hit. I mean, absolutely positive. Uh, and while we were writing it, um, a funny thing happened that happens sometimes in songs, which is, this plays, I just put my hand on a keyboard and I played. And John said, what's that? And I said, I have absolutely no idea. He said, well, keep playing it. And he started to sing. And we, as always, recorded this as we were writing it. And the tape, with one little break, is 27 minutes long. And about three minutes of it is us trying to find one really crucial chord in the song. <laughs> did, not, did not find... Uh, that chord. Anyway, and um, when we were done, John said to me, uh, so, so what do you think the title is? Because we had learned something that was important to us both. It's not important to every writer, but it was very important to us. And that was that, and that is, that if we put a title that we liked on the piece of music right away, the story began to emerge somehow. So I said, gee, I don't know. And he said, well, look in that damn book of yours, because I always kept the book. John didn't write anything down, and I write everything down. And so I started going through my list of ideas and titles. And I said, oh, how about Save the Best for Last? And he said, well, play it. And I played it, and he said, oh, yeah, that really sings. That's great. And I said, great. So I left that session with John. Oh, by the way, we went back to that song. We were positive was a hit. We didn't finish it. And to this day, we still haven't finished it. <laughs> unfortunately, no longer with us, and we'll never finish it. So um, I left that session. John went home to his family. I went to another writing session, my third of the day. 
that session started at 11 o'clock at night and wrote another song. And if you had asked me, as I was driving back to where I was staying, which of the three songs I had written that day was the one most likely to be a hit, I would have said that late night third one, which was called Undeniable. And um, a month later, I had suffered a, se a severe professional disappointment, which is a long story, but you have to learn to live with those. And my wife said to me, I think you should get out of town. And I said, what do you mean? I was kind of hurt. She said, you're so depressed. You're just bringing everybody down. I think you should get out of town. And I said, well, where am I going to go? And she said, well, Wendy Waldman's always asking you to come to Nashville. Why don't you go to Nashville? And I said, and leave you here with the two little kids? And she said, oh, yeah. That'll be better. That'll be better. So I called Wendy, who was nine months pregnant, and I went to Nashville. I'd never been to Nashville before. And we had a fantastic time. And we wrote three songs in that weekend. And one of them was this piece of music I brought her. When I showed her, when I played for her, this little scrap of tape of John and me running through it, she said, man, that's beautiful. I love that. What did you say you want to call it? And I said, save the best for last. And she said, gee, that's a really good title. I really like that. Show me. So I sang it. She said, that's great. She said, so what's, what's the story in your mind for this? And I said, well, I meant it kind of melancholy, almost ironic. And she said, what are you talking about? I said, well, I mean it as just at the end of the relationship, you hurt me. You saved the best for last. And she looked at me in this unerring way this woman has. And she said, you know, you're crazy. Well, she said it in a much tougher way, like you're out of your fucking mind. Said, what do you mean? What is it about? And she said, it's not about that at all. It's just when I thought you didn't love me, it turns out you love me. And I said, really? Like, I'm not kidding. I said, like a Moon in June song? And she said, yes. And one of us, we can't remember who, said, sometimes the snow comes down in June. And the other said, sometimes the sun goes around the moon. We said, boom, like that. And then we were off to the races. Amazing. Wow. Well, you know, so much of what you just talked about, um, you know, this this ability to tell a story with words and music is is dependent on words. But you've also done a lot of scores for film and and uh, TV. Um, ones that come to mind are the scores for the movie The Firm, um, What Happens in Vegas, the movie Cocktail. Let me, let me just stop you there. I didn't write the scores to the, those. I wrote the, I have written scores for film and I've written a few jingles in my life, although it's not a line of work I take to very well. Um, and I have written scores for TV too. Those were films, the firm, where songs of mine were used. Mm. But, gotcha. But Susan, you touched on something that's really interesting. And when I spoke before of how being freed from the rigors and the limitations of trying to be a performer, a recording artist, a star. And listen, I respect the hell out of the people who can do it, who can stomach it, and they've gave 
they've given life and voice to my song, so how could I not love them and respect them? But one of the other things that happened was I was free to do those other things. And so, for example, when a man who became my key mentor as a songwriter, the great, the legendary John Sebastian, who I'd known for two weeks, asked me if I would like to write with him the score to a film, I said yes, and I was free to explore all of that. And then subsequent to that, I had a very interesting experience. It shows how these different tools, I always say in songwriting, there are no rules, there are only tools. So think of them as skill, skill sets and techniques that you bring to bear. So I got word of a big movie that was being made at Disney called Cocktail. And um, I wangled away to see uh, a man who became, I won't use this word that often, but a legend in film music supervision, Chris Montan, who was the head of music at Disney, who'd been a recording artist and a songwriter. And I got in to see Chris, and I played him a bunch of songs for the movie Cocktail, and he, he didn't really like any of them. And he said, well, what else have you done? And I said, well, I just finished producing this album for this band in Scotland, Hipsway. He said, well, play me something from that. So I played him a cut from that. He said, would you be interested in producing the band Starship? And I said, well, not only would, it buy, would I be interested, I had a top 10 hit with them, uh, I think it was the year before, called It's Not Over Till It's Over. And they recorded a few of my songs. And he said, well, hang on. And he picked up the phone and he called Bill Thompson, the late Bill Thompson, their manager. And he said, I'm sitting here with Phil Galston. You know him. And Bill said, oh, yeah, he wrote a couple of great songs for us. He said, well, I think he'd be the right guy to produce this song that you guys have already said you want to record. Go wild again. So I walked out of this meeting with that option. I didn't go in with any idea like that. But the cool thing was that later that day, Chris called me and said, I want you to have lunch with, um, I think I have the name right, Roger Donaldson, the director of Cocktail. And I went to have lunch with Roger. And he said, please name check me on that. But he said, um, listen, I wanted to have lunch because I'm excited you're going to produce this. But this opening song has to be like a piece of score. And I said, wow. what do you mean? He said, I want it to be five minutes long. And I said, well, the, the demo of the song, Wild Again, is like three minutes long. He said, I know, but can I see from your bio that you've scored film. Can you make this into a five-minute piece? And it wound up being a six-minute piece. And I said, yes. So it's all, the, all these different opportunities you have and the, the chances to develop the skills sometimes come together in cool ways. So, I mean, a lot of the work you're talking about there is about collaboration. And you've, you've talked, obviously, about collaborating with another writer and what that process is. I, I think we, our, our listeners would be interested in about, I guess, collaborative storytelling generally. What's that process like? But also, as you're writing for a specific, specific artist sometimes, does that color the storytelling? Does that change the story you want to tell? Yes, uh, both are really great questions. I want to make sure that uh, we get to what Susan was trying to ask me about, and I cut her off, which was about what were you going to ask me about music? Well, basically, you know, 
we think about story being told with words mm. and yet some of the some of the work that you talked about that was scoring where there were there are no words the approach to telling a story when you're not leaning on lyrics or not leaning on words um just seems fascinating it is it's one of the most fascinating i mean this is why screen scoring and it doesn't matter if it's for motion picture television streaming gaming it's all an incredible art and an incredibly fascinating one um so I had the, the good fortune, my, my, I referred to, to John Sebastian, who played such a crucial role in my becoming the songwriter. I was able to become, and, and, and still, the lessons he taught me through collaboration illuminate so much of what I do uh, and what I teach, by the way. But um, my other key mentor was um, the every Hall of Fame producer, Phil Ramone. And uh, Phil originally signed my then partner, Peter Tom, and me to a record deal. That's a whole other chapter and story. And then later, Phil asked me to work with him on a variety of films. And part of my job in assisting Phil on those projects was to put songs and pieces of score up against raw film to see how they worked. So, so Susan, there's no better educational tool than that. And um, one of the points Phil made to me about songs, meaning music and lyric to film, was a lesson he learned from Quincy Jones, his dearest friend and longtime collaborator on a variety of projects. And Quincy said, never, never tell the same story twice. The song doesn't have to say what the film is portraying. The song needs to augment and highlight and strengthen and elevate the message of the film. And that's why there's so many great songs from films that really don't have that much to do with going with what's going on the stage. The best probably the best story in the in the popular realm is Mike Nichols asking Paul Simon to write songs for a film Nichols was directing, The Graduate, and Simon showed up with a bunch of songs, or at least a few, one of which I understand was um Old Friends, the last song on on, on uh, the first side of the great Simon and Garfunkel album, Bookends, and Nichols rejecting all of the songs and saying, no, no, they're too dead on. What else do you have? And Simon says, well, I started this song called Mrs. Roosevelt. And Nichols said, well, play it for him. Play it for me. So he played it, and Nichols said, that's it. But you know, the main character's name is Robinson. So if you can change Mrs. Roosevelt to Mrs. Robinson, I think we have it. Wow. And if you go and look at that lyric, it, it's just a vague reference. It's just the atmosphere and the movie, uh, of the movie and that vibe. So that's my way of explaining that If you think of music visually, this one recommendation I'd make to songwriters, if you think of it visually, then you're telling a story not just through the lyric, 
you're telling the story through your visualization or whatever metaphor you like for writing it, but that the key is the marriage. I often ask young songwriters, what do you listen to more when you first hear a song, the music or the lyrics? And like the general population, because I've asked groups to, to whom I've lectured the same question, even songwriters will say that the first thing that captures their ear is something about the music. So often the melody, maybe the harmonic structure when you get inside songwriting. And I say, okay, so we've got 95% of the songwriters in this room who admit that when they listen to a song for the first time, they're captured by the music. Now let me ask you songwriters, which takes you more time, music or lyrics? Virtually 100% will say lyrics. And then I have the great pleasure to say, don't you feel like a schmuck? You spend more time on the part that the audience listens to less. But that's not the point, even though that's fun to say. The point is the marriage. How do these two things go together? And Susan, there's another great aspect to your question. So uh, I became very good friends with the late Glenn Fry in the last five years of his life. And he was incredibly helpful to me in developing the songwriting program that I lead at NYU. And he even came to NYU and taught with me, which was an incredible experience. Um, but Glenn explained, as by the way, the Beatles did too, that when they were making Eagles records, they spent as much time on the solos, the instrumental passages, as they did on the melody and the lyrics to their songs. And the reason was they weren't going to leave that real estate of those minutes and seconds to somebody's imagination as much as they were going to create memorable moments. And if you go to an Eagles concert today, when they get, when the band gets to the coda to Hotel California, the entire audience sings those two minutes of guitar outro. So what are we trying to do here? You know, Glenn would always say, um, hey, it's called show business for a reason. Show. It's entertainment. Your first job is to entertain. I always tell young songwriters, your first job is to make sure that the audience does not reach for the skip button. It's the same idea. It's all about that. And and by the way, that ties back to communication. Right. Well, um, you know, as you were speaking, I started thinking about the question that Simon had asked you about collaboration. And what, what dawns on me is we always think, well, those of us who aren't in the business, think about collaboration in the creation of music or song as being the composer and the lyricist. And yet you've just described collaborations with directors, collaborations with music supervisors, collaborations with people who were creating pieces of entertainment where mm. song was part of it but so it's fascinating to me now because i'm now thinking about the whole idea of collaboration 
in a in a totally new way. You know, sometimes the collaborator is the guy who says, that isn't right. Show me what else you got. And then picks up the phone because they've now connected the dots that you may not have been right for this, but you were right for that. I, I'm wondering if yeah, that. You've just pierced the heart of, of collaboration. And, and the way it plays out in all the areas in which I've been involved, but particularly in songwriting, is in a couple of key concepts. The first one is that co collaboration is not competition. And the reason I say that is because I've written with far too many people. By the way, I recently totaled it, and I believe I've collaborated on songs with approximately 200 brother and sister writers in my life. Now, some of them, like John Lind and Wendy Waldman, wrote a whole body of work, of which I'm very proud, and we enjoyed a lot of success together. Some people, whether I wrote a successful song with them or not, I wrote one song with them and thought to myself as they walked out the door, I walked out the door, absolutely happy not to get together again. Let's see where this goes. And sometimes it's been totally unsuccessful. It's ended before we even finished anything. That happens too. But the one thing I know is that I see my job as collaborator is to foster an environment in which the other person can succeed because if they succeed, we both succeed. And that includes the idea of exploration. So a lot of times I've worked with people who've said to me in response to an idea I've proposed, well, that's good. If you want to work on that, go ahead. But I like where we are. And it took me about 20 years or so of writing to realize that's not good enough for me. It might be good enough for them and more power to them. And some of those people are more successful than I am. But I think the job is to say, okay, let's chase that idea. Let's see if it's going down a rabbit hole or to a new frontier we only dreamed of that's better than where we are now. If my idea is so good, the idea I'm stuck on, we're going to come back to it and it's going to win in the end. But meanwhile, I want them to feel nurtured and supported. And I also want to open my mind and heart to those ideas to see what, what the possibilities are. So with that in mind, legally speaking, the rights to a song are divisible by the number of collaborators, the number of contributors who agree to have their contribution memorialized in that song. Hey, we now agree it's done. At that point, whether you contributed one word or the entire lyric, one note or the entire musical content, you're due a third or a half, depending obviously on the number, or a tenth, depending on the number of people who contributed. Now, you can negotiate a different deal. Many people do. Many people have. I have a few times. But I bring that up not as a legal concept, but as an artistic concept, as a human concept, as a collaborative concept, that you want everybody in the room to think that it's special. And what you said, Susan, before is so important that the idea that one is an active collaborator or in the competitive sense, a domineering collaborator, neither of those concepts means 
very much, mean very much. What really means a lot is how are we putting it together so we're happy with it. And I'm thrilled that I've written a number of my most successful songs, number of the songs I'm happiest with, with more than one person, really in groups of three. That's that's so um, illuminating for those of us who don't have real experience in in the world that you inhabit. I mean, we have so many questions. We Simon and I talked before today's session, and you know, we talked about your work at uh, NYU. You know, you talked about bringing in people like Glenn Fry. We know that you do a, a whole series of conversations with songwriters. Yep. I can't imagine what it must be like for students to um, get to hear some of their songwriting heroes and heroines. Um, you know, you you've talked essentially about the business of music, and I know a lot of your courses are are focused on that. I mean, that whole that whole notion of how do the how do the profits of a song get divided? Uh, that I guess that's something that yeah. is is part of your courses. But um, you know, I I I guess and Simon, I'm jumping over some of the things that we talked about. Go ahead. Con, con, conversing with Phil, but there's something. There's an anecdote that you shared with me that actually links with something else that was in an interview that you did with art house music um, back in 2010. And the anecdote you shared with me, Phil, was that when you were in at union, you know, you were living in student housing that that bohemian life of students. And you brought in a, you rented a, a piano and it, probably was what you could afford as a student. And that lo and behold, you know, you're banging away on this piano and two of the, two of the keys broke and you found yourself having to work within the constraints of writing songs and not having to, not having the ability to use those two notes, which was fascinating. But then the other thing in the art house music interview, which I'd love you to talk about, is uh, you you account, you recounted a conversation and and we'll share a link to that interview with our 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 audiences in our show notes but you talked about Burt Bacharach saying when you when you write music you have to get away from using your hands and not hearing what you play but playing what you hear and you talked in that interview about the importance in creativity of putting yourself in a place where you're uncomfortable. And I can imagine that when you were, you know, that kid at Union College with you with with a record deal, oh my god. And <laughs> and and aspiring to that life uh, in music. The constraint of not having those two keys on your piano must have made you very uncomfortable, but I'm wondering if you can sure. you can talk a little bit about that and how you've used that willingness to make yourself uncomfortable in this amazing career with 700 songs and 200 collaborate and talk a little bit about that concept yeah um first of all let me say about my interview series words and music 
what I hope the students gain is insight into a life in song. I think some of my guests have been thrilling to them, but I think the person who is most thrilled is me, by far. Um, it's just to talk to Mike Stoller, of Lieber and Stoller, for two hours. I can't tell you what that was like. Gamble and huff. I can't tell you. Just the utter and total thrill. Hal David, Glenn Fry, Nile Rogers, etc. Um, we hope to get all of those online soon, by the way. Um, the uh, piano that I rented at Union College in Schenectady cost $5 a month. And uh, it really was a drag when the A flat and the, I don't remember the other note that went out, the B, I think. Uh, and when I called the piano rental company, they said, well, if you want to rent a piano for $8 a month, then we won't have that problem. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't afford that. Um, so what I encountered there for the first time, Susan, was what I have come to call over time, the inspiration of limitation. That you put yourself... Okay, so let's let's think about popular, the writing of popular songs. And you know, it, a lot of students that I work with, when they're introducing a song, which I ask them not to do, but they feel compelled to do, will say, well, it's only a pop song. And I'll stop and I'll say, hang on a sec, hang on. Is it only a pop song or is it only a popular song? What What is it? And they'll say, well, what's the difference? And I'll say, well, a pop song is a genre and a popular song is a song that's touched a lot of people. And they'll say, uh-huh, and I'll say, and while I'm saying, while I'm exploring this with you, let me let me say to you that I think that many song writers, particularly younger ones, like to think of popular as lowest common denominator. If that's true for you, let me point out that the key word in lowest common denominator is not lowest, it's common. Common meaning it's touched a lot of people. Common being the root of communication and community. So if you think that it's no big deal to write a song that touches a lot of people, I don't care the genre, I think you're mistaken. Okay, that's number one. Number two, if we talk about, if we think about popular songwriting, the writing of popular songs. We have to acknowledge that for a variety of reasons I won't go into, but they have to do with attention span and tradition and radio format, et cetera, et cetera. The world of, of popular songs is essentially three to four minutes. Yeah, you can go look at the first Beatle album. There's no, I think there's one song that's two minutes, 59 seconds. And then it, it expanded over time, and then there are notable songs, MacArthur Park, Hey Jude, Hotel California, et cetera, that exceed this limitation by, by a wide margin. So already you're putting yourself in a box. And the question is, what are you going to do in that box? There's your first limitation. So you're either going to say, man, I find this too stifling, and you're not going to do it, or you're going to say, let me be inspired by that box. It's like living in a tiny house. How can I make this interesting to the people who come to visit me, which is the, the audience is listening to your song? And so your whole job is to decorate this box, furnish this box in some way 
that's interesting, that may give the illusion that it's larger than they think it is, that it's more interesting than they think it is, or, or whatever it, it excites them, entertains them. So when Burt Bacharach said, to be a really good songwriter, I, I, don't, I could get you the exact quote, it's sitting behind me in the book, but he said, you have to be able to get away from your hands. What he meant was, and remember, he's a brilliant piano player. He said, your hands know what they can do, but your hands know what they can't do. So that means that you have to hear what you play instead of playing what you hear. I'm sorry. Wow, I just stepped all over that. You have to play what you hear instead of hearing what you play. So for all of us who start off by writing a song based on a chord progression, perfectly valid. I have no comments. I've done it a million times. I do it all the time. But the question is, when you're trying to decorate that box, are those chords too limiting? And I can show you, for example, many Lennon and McCartney songs, not to mention Backrack songs, not to mention Sting songs, Paul Simon songs, Joni Mitchell songs, people who have stretched the borders of this, in which the melody, which is what the audience tends to remember first and longest, takes the composer out of the harmonic framework that they started with, meaning the chords, and they have to go someplace else. So if you play what you hear, your melody may lead you astray from the chords, but there's nothing the matter with that. That's great. You can go to an early Lennon and McCartney song, like I'll Follow the Sun, and you can think, man, that's a simple ditty. We can sing that around the campfire, and you know what? It's true, melodically, but harmonically, it changes keys about five times. Within, it changes keys within the first four bars of the song. When the intro is over, they change key. Now, young songwriters will say, oh, I don't want to write a song with modulation. Those are modulations. That's the technical term for them. Why did Lennon and McCartney do that? They didn't know anything about as trained musicians. They had great ears. So they're the perfect embodiment of what Burt Bacharach said. Wonderful. As... As Susan said, we could talk about this all all day. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a huge amount of time on our on our actual podcast. Maybe we can do a part two at some point. At some point, we'd oh, love God, that. Oh God, that would be so great. Yeah, but for now, what we normally like to finish our podcast with is: Do you have? Because this is all about stories. Do you have a particularly a favorite story from writing songs? From writing songs, oh. or from your experience? You know. As a you're writer, a, you're a, you're a granddad, a fairly recent granddad again. I mean, is it, are these bedtime stories? Is it a joke? Yeah. Is it just your favorite story? Huh. And boy, my boy, I bet you've got a lot of them. I have hundreds of them. I'll, I'll tell you the one I'll go with today, which I don't know that I can say is my favorite, but I have a particular emotional reason for wanting to go there. Hang on, let me take a sip. <laughs> Uh, next week, uh, Nancy and I, my wife and I, are going to Los Angeles to attend the memorial 
from my late great friend and collaborator, John Lind. And if you don't know John Lind, ladies and gentlemen, just check out not only Save the Best for Last, The Sweetest Days, Whisper a Prayer, I owe you one, all hit songs we wrote together and others, but his some of his other great contributions, Crazy for You from Madonna, which, by the way, knocked a song of mine out of that project, Vision Quest, starring Madonna, um, before I even knew John, and uh, Boogie Wonderland, which he co-wrote with the late, great Allie Willis. So Nancy and I are going to John's memorial, and as fate and really wonderful, honored opportunity will have it, uh, John's widow, Sue, has asked me to lead this memorial service. So I get to speak first, and I am telling a couple of anecdotes from our time together. We had many a fantastic adventure. So I'll tell one of those. <clears throat> I got to Los Angeles for a writing trip with John and Wendy. And by the way, John, Wendy, and I wrote a whole group of songs together. And the three of us were never in the same room at the same time. I wrote the music with John, just as I told that story of Save the Best for Last. And I wrote the lyrics with Wendy. And I, I was shuttle diplomacy. I was going back and forth. They never disagreed, but I was going back and forth. And the only time we were ever in the same room together was on the few occasions where we won awards together or were up for awards together. And when we recorded some demos, which Wendy would usually sing. Okay. So on this occasion, I, I got to LA to write with John and Wendy and, um, my first stop from the airport was to go over to Paramount Pictures Studios, Paramount Lot, because Vanessa Williams had invited me to drop by. She was filming her first starring role in a movie, a film called Eraser. So I went over, hung out with her. We had a great time. And as I was leaving, she said, you know, they want me to sing a song for the soundtrack of this film. And I really don't want to do that because I want to be seen as an actress. But... Okay, I think it's probably a good idea. W would you three please write a song for me for this film? And I said, oh, that'd be great. And I'm out here to write with them, so it's great. What kind of song would you like? And she said, well, you know, you've written all these ballads for me. How about something kind of 70s soul? And I said, oh, that would be a blast. And part of the reason I knew that would be a blast is that John in the 70s, it was part of the Earth, Wind, and Fire camp, which is how he wrote Boogie Wonderland. So he had deep roots in that, and John was an incredibly soulful guy, musically and otherwise. So I went over to John's house, and I said, hey, Vanessa asked us to do this. Why don't we do it? So he said, okay, great. So we sat down, and we sort of flew around, and he said, and we, we came up with a piece of music pretty quickly, and he said, well, what should this be called? And I said, well, Eraser is a terrible title, how about Erase? And he said, oh, I love that. That's great. So we worked on it, and he sang Tumble Dummy Lines. We finished the music. I went to Wendy's house the next day. Wendy and I worked on the lyric. In about three days, we had this thing done. We were very excited about it. I called Vanessa. I said, we've got it. Can we play it for you? We don't, we don't even want to demo it. We just want to play it for you. She said, sure. Can you guys come out to where we're filming? So I said, sure, where's that? She said, the Van Nuys Airport. So I said, uh, okay, but we'll have to bring instruments, right? She said, yes. I said, okay. Got off the phone and told John. We made the appointment. John and I put 
his acoustic guitar, a dinky keyboard, and a little amp in his car. We drove out to the Van Nuys Airport. We're, we're permitted to enter. We're directed to Vanessa's trailer. We knock on the door. She opens the door. She's in a bathrobe, curlers. <laughs> Come on in. Hugs, kisses, you know. She said, so I said, we're going to play here? She said, yeah, I'm sorry. We're going to be called on the set soon. So if you don't mind playing it here. So we said, no, not at all. Fine. So we're setting up our little gear. And she says, oh, hang on. There's somebody else should hear this. So she goes down the steps of her trailer. And a few minutes later, she comes back. And who does she have in tow? Her co-star, Arnold Schwarzenegger. So... She introduces us. We say hi to Arnold, but she won't let Arnold in the trailer because Arnold is smoking a cigar and she doesn't want the cigar smoke in her trailer. So Arnold now sits on the steps to her trailer, trailer, the aluminum steps, leaning into her trailer. We've got this little keyboard perched on a table. John's got a guitar. Vanessa is standing there and we play a race. And when it's over, she says, perfect. That's exactly what I was hoping for. And John and I look at each other like, okay, man, we've done it. And then she turns to Arnold. She says, so what do you think, Arnold? Takes a puff on his cigar. Now, John was great at the Arnold impression. I'm below average. But Arnold takes a puff and he says, I was hoping for more explosions. <laughs> Rock, rockets and boom and glare, rockets, lead, glare. I, 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 I think we need that, more of that. So she turns to us and she says, and you know, this is the kind of comment you get from people who review your songs where you have to interpret that. What does that mean? More explosions, more rockets, red glare. I want to see fireworks, he said. And we said, oh my God. Okay. So I turn to John and I say, well, we did just finish that other big dramatic ballad. And John said, what do you mean? I said, if I had wings. And he said, oh, yeah, we'd, it was the song we'd finished with Wendy right before a race. So we said, okay, we turned to Vanessa. We said, okay, we'll, we'll play this for you. She says, great. So we, we play If I Had Wings, which if I do say so, is a pretty damn good piece of work. And... When it's over, Vanessa says, oh, that's beautiful. She turns to Arnold. She says, what do you think? And Arnold says, he points to one of his tree trunk-like arms, and he says the immortal word, goosebumps. <laughs> goosebumps. Amazing. We recorded oh. It was a fantastic experience. But from then, then on, any time... We finished a song. John would say two things. First is, I have an overwhelming false sense of security right now, which was a typical John thing to say. And the second was, if we did anything that he thought was good, he'd say, goosebumps. <laughs> Brilliant. That oh. is so terrific. Well, Phil, thank you so much. This is this has just been terrific. And, um, you know, we know that this story conversation is going to provoke goosebumps on a lot of our audience's arms. And um, after all, that's what you want your stories 
to do um, the best of them. So thank you very much. Um, yes, thank we're, you. We're, we're going to have to think about um, another episode because this is there's just too many stories to tell. Mm. But, I look forward to it. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Well, that was that was big for me. I, 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 you know, <laughs> I know you, you, you know, Phil well, Susan. I and, do. Yeah, I do. And I've, was... I've had the I've had the pleasure and privilege of, of working with him on helping to promote a couple of the projects he's worked on, mm. uh, specifically stuff he's done with Kurt Elling. Mm. Um, there is so much to unpack in this session. Some things that we've talked about before. So, um, Let's do I our top terms, three. Yeah, yeah, our top three. Um, I loved the idea of the importance of backstory. Mm. Um, and and the notion that in any, well, in any song, but in any business communication, right? Mm. The no- notion of limited real estate. So you don't need to tell the backstory, but you need to figure out a means of implying the backstory. So the essential thing is that everybody who's telling the story needs to understand the backstory. Yeah. Those those of us who who know theater know that that this is essential for a performer's the way a performer attacks a character or a yep. song or, yep. or, but I think it's also essential for business communicators because you've got limited real estate, whether it's yeah. social media or you're being introduced at a conference or you're doing um, a pitch to a new prospect. You, you, you deliver the succinct communication of the message but it's got to be informed by all the passion, all the yeah. enthusiasm of the backstory. So it's that the, was something. Yeah, the context, the foundation, the backstory is the foundation of everything, isn't it, really? Right. Yeah. I think um, another point that, that I thought was really interesting is this, and, and, and amusing, I think, is, you know, what is most important to your audience, not is what is most important to you as, as the creator of the story, of the teller of the story. I think the way Phil talks about the, the anecdote with his students about how much effort and time they spend on lyrics when actually the music is the memorable thing. And for my colleagues who I collaborate with, with lyricists and I, I get it. Ly- lyrics are important. If they, if they're wrong, it matters, but sweating the details. Sometimes it's like, well, who's going to notice that only you as the artist. And I think right. sometimes when it comes to, um, marketing or communications we sweat the wrong details we're not right. focusing on what our audience is going to pay attention to we're focusing on what we perhaps are paying attention to um, right so it's it's and and, and that notion that your most important job is to make sure the audience doesn't hit the skip button yeah yeah right well that's so relevant to business because your most important job when you're telling your brand story is to make sure that the audience metaphorically doesn't hit the skip button. I guess it's the scroll. Phone. Don't scroll yeah, down. The, don't, don't scroll. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Right. No, but as a as a composer lyricist yourself, I mm. I 
I suspected you would find that one. I write lyrics really fast, and then I'm just kind of, and then I'll they'll, I'll refine them a little bit. But but some of my collaborators, I mean, are upset and beautifully so, and the, the results are fantastic. But sometimes you go, oh, just I just want to shout that I want to shout at some of them. Go just just stop, just stop. <laughs> right, right. Um, I don't know if you want to tell your apocryphal. Oh story. well, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it's really attributable, but there, there is a there is a famous story about a Rodgers and Hammerstein and how someone came up to um, the wives at a party and uh, said to Mrs. Hammerstein, "Oh, your husband wrote uh, some enchanted evening," and Miss, oh no, said to Mrs. Rogers, "Your husband wrote some enchanted evening," and Mrs. Hammerstein said, "No, her husband wrote la da dee dee da da. My husband wrote some enchanted <laughs> evening," right. and I love that idea that you know the thing that was memorable get, kind of gets it's not fair really because they all get pushed together, and actually this is a collaboration between words and music. Not sure that's relevant, but I think it's an interesting yeah, story. It's a great, <laughs> it's a great story. How yeah. about that? Um, yeah, and I guess the, the the other takeaway that was was new, we haven't heard this before, but I think it's it's really brilliant, is the idea of the inspiration of limitation. I think that's mm. the way Phil described it. You, you know, his story about losing two keys on his yeah. rented college piano was this constraint, but... Sometimes we forget that constraints can really fuel innovation and creativity. Absolutely. Constraints put us in a place that we're uncomfortable. Again, something that Phil talked about. Um, And, you know, whether it's in business, whether it's constraints of time, constraints of computing power, whatever constraints you have, they force you to make choices that you might not otherwise pursue because you wouldn't have to. Yeah. Um, and we, we and we face constraints in business all the time. We, we the constraint of, you know, the limitation of characters in social mm. media, or yeah, just the constraint of telling your story economically. But the need to tell it powerfully, um, and the, it, so many times, our clients tend to to not look at that constraint as a as an asset in yeah. terms of communication um and it you know it's especially true when you're trying to communicate a complicated value proposition um in a phrase or a tagline or mm. even in that marvelous thing we call sonic branding yeah i mean i think i think it's um you're thinking I, one of the things I was thinking about when you were saying that was this idea to go back to theatre and musical is that how many great and memorable songs are written in what they call out of town. You know, once once a show has gone into development and it's sort of two weeks in and they're like, oh, that song in the second act isn't really working. And then they right. replace it with the song that everybody then gets to know about a musical. It's that, it's that constraint of time. And in the work that we're doing, I think that constraint can re- really, really can... Um, show benefits and I'm thinking about some of the work I do with organizations around how do you tell your story when you say you need to tell it in six sentences and here are the sentence start here's the start of the sentence all of a sudden that's sort of a bit of a light bulb moment where they go oh actually this is easy I can do this actually I can tell something quite interesting right. and compelling right. fascinating conversation um oh, 
really, just, really. Yeah, and such a privilege oh. to be able to speak to Phil. To somebody who we thought we knew a lot about, but all of the anecdotes and all of the people that he's worked with, it, I mean, he's just this giant um, in the music world. And are we, are we not lucky to have a conversation with someone of that? Yeah. Um, fame. So, yeah, this it, Phil was a great guest to have, particularly since he's the last guest of this season of Story Conversations. We'll have one more episode where we kind of uh, summarize a lot of the learning that we've had mm. over the course of these great Story Conversations um, of this first season. And we are in planning stages for next season we are so indeed. please um tune in and go back and listen to some of the episodes you haven't heard yeah and in the meantime please do feel free to get in touch as always story conversations is produced by iambic creative and griffin escapes collaborative we help organizations with their communication their brand their marketing um, from everything from brand storytelling sonic branding and of course, marketing, tone of voice and visual imagery. So get in touch. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And if not, we'll see you on the next episode. Bye for now.